0: I'd like to welcome um, Martha Elias to introduce today's speaker. Martha is an assistant professor of uh, medicine and pediatrics in the section of allergy and immunology. Thanks. Thanks. Um, It's with great pleasure that I introduce Dr. Steve Holland. He received his did I do anything? Uh, he received his medical degree from John Hopkins University School of Medicine, where he stayed as an internal medicine resident, assistant chief of service in medicine, and fellow in infectious diseases. He came, uh, he went to the NIH as a National Research Council fellow, and he studied congenital immune defects. His research interests include chronic granulomatous diseases, uh, Job Syndrome, and Genetic Conditions that Predispose People to Mycobacterial Infections. Last year, he became the Director of Intramural Research and Scientific Director at the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. He's the author of over 500 publications and has been named an NIH Distinguished Investigator. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Holland.
1: Now I got to. I apologize for that. building. In trouble. I just don't.
0: Personality. <laughs> Can I do it without the uh, mic? Can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, our, so, if, if like... I turn this on and I leave this off, I
1: think you're okay. I'll be okay. Yeah. Okay. I want to blow you away with the quality of the presentation, not with the electronics. <laughs> So I'd like to say uh, thank you uh, to uh, Lou and to the ANI division for the opportunity to be here, and a big thanks to the pilot of Cape Air, who actually, despite turning off the radar, did land safely. (laughs) So um, my goal today is to talk to you about some things that I bet you don't hear about very often. And if you're like me and you grew up thinking immunodeficiencies were bizarre and um, esoteric problems that really got resolved in infancy, Um, I want to tell you just how wrong I was and I hope I can show you things that I bet uh, you've seen and that now that you see some of the patterns you might say, whoa, wait a minute I saw that and I missed it and I say that in all humility because I missed them for a long time and I'd like to share some of that experience painful as it might have been uh, with you because it's important these are your patients now I have to start out by saying that this is the um, National Institutes of Health um, hospital Um, actually we have a very small hospital It's only about 200 beds. But what makes it distinct is that our laboratories are here on either end of the building. And so we're constantly able to go back and forth between the bench and the bedside. That's really our mantra, that we want to take diseases that we don't understand very well and then um, do both bench and bedside research to make those work. And I want to make sure that you know <clears throat> that we've got rotations for medical students, for residents. We've got fellowships in allergy and immunology, infectious disease, as well as endocrinology, and virtually anything uh, that you might be interested in. We've got postdoctoral opportunities. And then we've got jobs for clinicians, in you know, people who want to spend their time seeing patients and doing real medicine on real humans. There are also um, research programs, uh, one called the Lasker Clinical Scholars Program for those who have gotten to the end of their training and want some more opportunity to develop their research careers um, with real money and real support. The power of the Lasker program is that you can take that money at the end of five years, take $500,000 a year and go back out to a university with support for your laboratory. And the number of universities that turn you down with that sort of dowry is small. (laughs) so there are many different opportunities it's right in the heart of Bethesda and although um, I often call it a small town having been here to uh, Hanover uh, it's actually a metropolis (laughs) now if your idea of a day in hell is hearing somebody talk about immunology and you know T cells microbiology immunology I'm telling you it's gonna get real hot but I think that um you can't understand these diseases without understanding some of what's going on behind them. So let me just start with, um, you know, uh, an important uh, idea here about why these are important to study. So, um, do we have any medical students in the audience? Okay, good, 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 good. Yeah, I like to see those hands real low, like you put them under the table. It's okay, it's right now. This is human population growth. I know because I was here for part of it. This is human population growth. Where is the introduction of antibiotics? And which was the first antibiotic introduced? So do we have from the medical students? First antibiotic. How about the year? Woo, okay, I'm not that old. So. But the important point here is that the first antibiotic is the one. It was an anniversary. It was a, a centennial that went virtually unheralded, and it was the development of salversan in 1909. Ehrlich was trying to develop a, a drug to treat the African sleeping sickness, trypanosomiasis, so that colonization could move forward. Turned out to be not a very good drug for that. It was great for that other sleeping sickness called syphilis, but it took it took 23 years for the next drug to be introduced, sulfonamides, and it was 33 years until the introduction of penicillin, which often gets first billing. The drugs to treat um, tuberculosis, including streptomycin, were not until uh, later in the 1940s. I point this out Because we think, as doctors, that we're doing a big deal with antibiotics. I'm an infectious disease guy. I know I'm doing a big deal with antibiotics. And I don't mean just causing C. diff and altering the microbiome. (laughs) But look at the slope of human population growth. We were built to survive. We were built to tolerate the environment. And we would not be a population of many billions if we were waiting for um, industry to come along with antibacterials to make it work. And if you're interested in this, which a book that I have to say, despite the fact that um, it would mark you out as a complete nerd and make people move away from you on the Group W bench, Um, The Demon Under the Microscope is a terrific book that outlines the development of antibacterials and really goes through the development of sulfonamides, but talks about the the genesis of this. Really a book worth reading that I think most physicians, I never knew about, um, could benefit from. Okay, but so that means that the real elephant in the room here is why do people get sick? If nature had billions of years to figure out how to prevent it, why do we still get sick? And so... What you really need to be thinking about here is what is our approach to immune deficiency? How do we do that? How do we understand those diseases so that we can come up with a formula? So what I want to tell you about immunodeficiencies, despite the fact that many of us think that these are rare, in fact, it's quite the opposite, because the infections that are hallmarks of immune deficiency are, in fact, those organisms that we all encounter every day. They're the common organisms that say to you, when you encounter somebody with pneumocystis, you don't say, wow, that that guy just got a bad pneumocystis exposure. No. You say, you know, everybody's exposed that he shouldn't have gotten it. How come he did it? It's precisely because it's common that you recognize that, not because it's rare. It's rare that it happens. It's common that they're exposed. So these are all about. People who are exposed to microbes that most of us resist all the time. And, you know, the reason I went into infectious disease is that there are only three things to consider. For any different problem, it's either a bad bug, like anthrax or tuberculosis, it's a host problem, which we're going to talk about, or an, ex- it's an exposure, like a traumatic inoculation, or in the ID consult business, um, a surgical uh, intervention. So, our premise is that anybody who's sick must have a reason. And if there's a reason, you know, it's our job and we can find it. So here's the scary truth. There are right now 330 different primary immune deficiencies recognized. And that number has been changing dramatically. And so here back in the 1970s and 80s, um, you know, there were just a very, very small number. There was Skid, and then there were things that looked like Skid, and that was about it. But with the advent of better phenotyping, and really mostly, as you see here, over the last 20 years with the advent of gene sequencing, the um, outburst of uh, uh, knowledge about immunodeficiencies has been staggeringly high. So just to put this in context, there are about 200,000 entries in the Oxford English Dictionary, Um, Surprisingly, to me, there are about 400,000 in the Webster's Dictionary. Um, You know, that doesn't even include um, tweets. Um, But, you know, just to put that in context, we mostly know most of those words. Most of us are okay with things that we would encounter in a dictionary. There are only about 23,000 genes, and so there are only 330 primary immune efficiency genes. It's not that hard. Now you think, oh, come on, 330. But stop and think about it. The last time you listened to somebody talking about sports, right? And I don't mean Chris Christie. I mean, the last time you heard somebody talking about sports, uh, people who sit down in a locker room. And I don't mean, like, the kind of stuff that, you know, Billy Bush does. You know, every major league team plays 162 games each season, and there are 30 teams. Stop and think how many players you actually know. I don't. But... You probably do. How many players do you know? You know something about what they do, what position they play. You know an extraordinary amount that is frankly not all that useful in your day-to-day life that you spend time doing and somehow it registers. What I want to do is to try and help you register just a couple of the immunodeficiencies because we're not talking about a number that is importantly large. In fact, it's a number that's surprisingly small. Okay, so to understand this, you just got to remember a little bit about genetics. Um, Let me remind you, this is uh, Gregor Mendel, uh, who in the 1860s recognized that if you played around with peas, you could get them to look um, certain ways. Now, unfortunately, it took him over 40 years to get that paper published, and by then he was dead, which is really not recommended for most postdoctoral training. But that changed the face of the world, the idea that there were heritable traits. But, of course, it took 50 years more to identify what those heritable traits were in terms of their physical structure. And then it really took uh, a terrific uh, uh, physician and scientist, Victor McKusick, whom I had the great uh, pleasure to work with, to come up with the idea that you could catalog this. And if you're not using this site, OMIM, has anybody here used OMIM? Okay, I mean it's a spectacular opportunity and I strongly encourage it, and it's free. So um, if you go under the PubMed menu menu in NCBI, under PubMed you pull it down and there's OMIM there, that's online Mendelian Inheritance and in Men. You can type in a gene, you can type in a syndrome, you can type in a symptom and come up with things that tell you why that might be true. And then it even lists um, some of the links that will get you to the genes and to the treatments. Okay. So <clears throat> immunodeficiencies are important. There are a lot of them, but um, there are ways to dissect them out. There aren't, they're not as incomprehensible as you might think. So when should you wonder about it? Now, this, for those of us that work in the hospital setting, it's very important to have a general sense of what's the frequency of these things in the general population. So, you know, there are about the rate of immunodeficiency worldwide is about 1 in 10,000 humans. Now, you might say that's not a big number, but, you know, that means that there are um, if there are four million births every year in the United States, there are 400 new immunodeficiencies being born every year. And so if most of them survive and they do in this country, that means that there are tens of thousands of people with immunodeficiencies, many of which are still undiagnosed. I want to just put it in context. The number of cases of tuberculosis diagnosed in this country last year. Anybody want to give me a, a ballpark? Million, 100,000, <coughs> how much? It's about 10,000, about 9,000 cases diagnosed in the United States. Only about 4,000 of those were U.S. born. What that means, though, is my guess is most of us here, if not everyone here, has screened for tuberculosis. And the number of times that any of us screened for immunodeficiency, I bet, is considerably smaller. And although the screening tests for tuberculosis are, are simple and easy to do, everybody knows how to do it to just write an order, the testing for immunodeficiency can be a little more complex. And yet they're more common and you can have a huge influence by identifying them. Now, why would you think about this so specifically in the um, this is work by Charlotte Cunningham Rundles at Mount Sinai in New York, who went back through the coding in their hospital and the bottom line is if you 've got people with recurrent infections or chronic infections, what we would call um, typically the frequent flyers on your uh, on your medical playlist, um, those patients had immunodeficiencies identified in thirty percent of the cases, so those people who are your most persistent players are those where you would probably have the highest yield. And this was a paper from 2004, back when we had about um, half as many immunodeficiencies as we have now. Okay, so now I'm going to just, that's the context. I want to go and talk to you about two I'm only going to talk about two, but I hope that they are illustrative of the problem. So mycobacterial infections are a big deal. I'm really interested in tuberculosis. So this was identified, TB was identified by uh, Robert Koch in 1882. He honest to God invited all of his pals over and he um, showed them right there in his kitchen his discovery of tuberculosis and that led to two critical phenomena. Number one, people said never am I eating at your house again. (laughs) And number two, his wife said, never are you serving dinner to guests. But he showed them that, and then from that came all sorts of things. Lots of controversy, took a long time. But despite the fact that we've had over 130 years of knowledge of M-tuberculosis, we're still not much better at figuring out why people get it. We know that diabetes is important. We know smoking is important. We know HIV immunosuppression. But why do normal, healthy people get tuberculosis in the lung? We're still pretty clueless, to be frank. In contrast, all these organisms down here are referred to as the non-tuberculous mycobacteria. And in those infections, over the last 20-plus years, we've realized that if you don't have HIV and you have a disseminated infection with those, not a pulmonary infection, a disseminated infection, then we can identify uh, genetic features. And so, although there are several different kinds of non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease, the disseminated form has been extremely successfully dissected at the molecular level. So let me just remind you that what we know about mycobacterial control in 2017 is that mycobacteria here in red infect macrophages. And when they do that, macrophages make interleukin-12. That works on its receptor, on T cells and then K cells. That leads those cells to make interferon gamma. Interferon gamma feeds back on all nucleated cells, to signal through its receptor, and it does multiple things, including upregulating tumor necrosis factor, fever, weight loss, wasting. And it signals to make more IL-12, so it's a positive feedback. And then in mechanisms that are really still best described as magic, it leads to the killing of intracellular mycobacteria. We really don't understand the, the effectors of that. But we know that this is the pathway because we've got specific Mendelian defects in all of these genes that have been associated with disseminated disease I won't walk you through all those but just to say this is well understood now okay so what are the organisms they get although these are often referred to as MSMD or Mendelian susceptibility to mycobacterial disease in fact it's not limited to mycobacteria although they are susceptible to virtually all the mycobacteria that are out there they also get severe salmonella Burkholderia, Listeria, some fungi like histoplasma and coccidioides, as well as some viruses. So although people talk about these as mycobacterial susceptibility, they're really susceptibility to a broad range of things. And what unifies almost all of these organisms is that they live intracellularly. This is about how macrophages control parasites that get inside of them. Okay, now here's where it gets complicated. Almost all of these develop in childhood. You got a defect that's present at birth, you know, you expect to see it show up relatively early, especially if you live in a country that gives BCG, um, the International Immunodeficiency Challenge Test. Those kids get vaccinated on day one of life and usually show up with disease by about three months. But now I need your help. So I am interested in severe disseminated mycobacterial disease. And this woman is referred to me um, from, Uh, in the south so she's a 60 year old woman from Vietnam a little old for the presentation of primary immune deficiency not impossible but a little bit old and her story is that she was perfectly healthy she survived the war she survived the boat lift she survived um, the camps she came to Nashville where she set up a business had three children was very successful and then at 59 started to lose weight and be sick and she went to her uh, doctor and you know you know what doctors are like that person takes a look at her she's eighty eight pounds and says "Ooh, you got cancer you are likely gonna die but we'll go figure out what kind and when they found out that it was mycobacteria they said "Ooh, I don't get it <laughs> And eventually, I mean, these are good doctors. It's not, you know, nobody did anything wrong. These are good doctors, but it's like confusing. And they eventually referred her uh, to me. And you can see that she's got fistulae here where mycobacteria are rupturing through her skin and they're rupturing through her skin because she's got multifocal osteomyelitis where the mycobacteria are just, you know, lysing and draining. But so now here's my problem. My problem is that I know a lot about the genetic diseases that lead to mycobacteria, but she's a little funny for that. And when we go and look for all those genetic diseases, we don't find them. So what is it? It looks like a genetic syndrome, but it's not a genetic syndrome that we understand. So this is the point at which it turns out to be useful to actually read the literature. Now, I'm old enough that I take all my literature in print form, uh, and um, it's really built up my biceps to be able to carry those journals around. But you know, sometimes you have to read those articles that you didn't think you wanted to read. And this one was particularly surprising. This is from a woman uh, named Plonchan Chichoksa, who is in Eastern Thailand And she had identified 59 Thai patients who did not have HIV who had disseminated non-tuberculous disease with all these other co-infections. Well, look at that. Salmonella, histoplasma, uh, Burkholderia, just like the infections that we saw with the genetic lesions around non-tuberculous disease. But these were adults. In Thailand, the country where there's lots of tuberculosis and people were being BCG vaccinated. And so we were curious about this. We wondered, could this tell us something about the patients that we were seeing? So Sarah Brown, who was a fellow uh, in my lab at the time, set up a protocol to go to Thailand and to look at these patients. And just as an aside, if you're interested in doing kind of work like that, the NIH is set up to take fellows to do that kind of stuff. Listen to me now. And when she went there and started looking at these patients, what she saw were things like this. This man had both disseminated Penicillium marneffei and Mycobacterium fortuitum. This woman had really profound Salmonella lymphadenitis. This boy, this young man, had cryptococcal osteomyelitis, and this young woman had disseminated Mycobacterium abscessus coming through her skin. There are also a subset of these people who had um, what was called um, EGPA or Sweet Syndrome. You can see a neutrophilic pustulosis, quite dramatic. And yet they didn't have any of the genetic disorders that we thought were relevant. So if this is not genetic, what is it? And so now you've got to think, how can you phenocopy a genetic disorder? So we turned to a guy uh, at the NIH named Peter Burbello, And um, what he had developed is something called LIPS. And it's called Luciferase Immunoprecipitation Systems. I mean, everybody's got to have a snarky name, you know. Uh, but anyway, he called it LIPS. The general idea here is that you say, here's my target I want to look for. Let's say it's a cytokine. And you link that cytokine to luciferase, which is something that glows in the dark. And then you express that in bacteria. So now you've got your target, let's say interferon gamma, linked to something that glows. You mix it with plasma from your patients. And then you pull out the antibodies with very easy, uh, commonly available beads. And now if your antibody bound to your target, it also glows. So you can read out as light anything that your antibody is binding to The power of this is that if you can clone it, you can tag it. and, And now you can clone everything. And when he did that, we decided to look for virtually everything we could think of that might be an acquired problem that looked like a genetic problem. And we saw lots of binding to lots of different cytokines. But the only one that was distinct between those who had disease and who didn't was interferon gamma. So these patients had antibodies against interferon gamma, and those antibodies against interferon gamma mimicked the genetic disorder and were distinct. And what you see here is that only those patients who had disseminated non-tuberculous disease or those other opportunistic infections, salmonella, cryptococcus, only those people had the high level of the antibodies Whereas those who had disseminated tuberculosis or pulmonary tuberculosis or normals didn't have those antibodies. That is, they were specific. And what was fascinating about it is that the cells of these patients were fine. Because if we looked at the ability of their cells, here's the cell of the patient and it's mixed here with fetal calf serum, a typical laboratory reagent, and then stimulated with interferon gamma, and they stimulate fine, and they produce lots of tumor necrosis factor. But if you do exactly the same thing, you take normal cells in the presence of patient serum, you see that you can't stimulate with interferon gamma. That is, the antibodies completely block the ability of interferon to signal. So suddenly, we had an explanation for why these things were happening in Thailand. Turns out that it's very common. If you show up with an opportunistic infection in Thailand or other parts of Southeast Asia and you don't have HIV, the chances that you have this are about 90%. But the fascinating thing, so the patient I saw, I wasn't in Thailand when she came to the NIH. I was in Bethesda. And so when people move to the United States, only the women get sick. And so it's quite fascinating. These anti-interferon autoantibodies are predominantly in this country, predominantly in East Asian born women, not South Asian, and not women of East Asian origin born here. East Asian women born in Southeast Asia predominantly who come here. Now, when you're in Thailand, the rate of disease in men and women is the same. When you're here, it's almost exclusively The women so that means that there are things that are genetic because it's a certain group of people and we now can trace this back to certain HLA alleles but it's also geographic if they're born here it doesn't happen if it happens there it does and it's somewhat gender influenced so this is sort of the holy grail of looking for those gene environment interactions that are influenced by everything uh, from hormonal Uh, exposures to environmental exposures, and we're trying very hard to dissect that out. But I want to mention that here because these patients are out there, and if you've got somebody, especially an East Asian woman, who shows up in adulthood with a funny problem, stop and think about this disease. Now, um, if you're really bored uh, this evening, you know, the temperature goes up, you got nothing else to do, um, this was a New England Journal article in 2012, it may still be in the wrapper under the bed if you're um, like many of us, but it's a very interesting exposition of a new approach to understanding immune problems. But you know, it's all about following your mistakes, and I actually find following my mistakes more valuable than um, following my successes, and, and uh, many people remind me of how good I've been at those. But The fact is that not everybody who had opportunistic infections had um, anti-interferon autoantibodies. And so we looked at that guy there, for instance, who had a disseminated opportunistic infection, in that case with cryptococcus, who didn't have anti-interferon autoantibodies. He was the only guy. This is his CT scan. You can see the mass there. It was in his eroding into his rib and he had it in his CSF. The only guy in our group who had autoantibodies to GMCSF. Now as many of you know, autoantibodies to GMCSF are the most common acquired cause of pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. The autoantibodies to GMCSF inhibit the ability of pulmonary alveolar macrophages to digest surfactant. This guy didn't have that. But he did have bad cryptococcal disease. And so we went back and started looking at other people with cryptococcal disease. And what you see is that it's actually relatively common, but only in those who have cryptococcus gattii. And so um, these are people from uh, all over the world who have cryptococcus gattii. There are only two forms of cryptococcus that cause disease in humans. Neoformans is mostly in the immunocompromised group, like HIV-infected patients. Gadii is what happens in the, quote, immunocompetent host. So if you see somebody who's got bad cryptococcus gadii disease, you need to stop and say, whoa, could this be a defect in gm autoantibody? Um, production now then as is true for most gamblers it's the intermittent reinforcement that is the most addictive so once you start identifying these things it's hard to stop so this guy 43 year old marine comes home from his tour in afghanistan and is driving through rural virginia and suddenly has a seizure and runs into a telephone pole And he goes to the emergency room and, you know, this is what it's like in the real world. Ooh, That's brain cancer. We better debulk it. Now, here's the part that I find still quite surprising. When they went in, they cultured it. Uh, In my world, that just never happens. (laughs) All the time you get a call saying, oh, there was pus there and it's informal. And now, would you like to go culture it? I said, no. But here they did, they saw that it was pus, they cultured it, and it grew nocardia. And he got referred to me for, why should an otherwise healthy man have nocardia? And eventually what we found was that he too had autoantibodies to GMCSF. We could go back through his military blood donation and find that he'd had these autoantibodies for 10 years before he finally developed disease. But when he did develop disease, it was quite severe, and we were able to treat it, and so on. Interestingly, now five years later, he's gone on to develop pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. But then we go back and start looking at other people who had severe disseminated and/or uh, CNS nocardiosis, and we found it now in seven patients around the world. This is actually a very significant risk factor for this disease. No other autoantibodies; only GMCSF. So. The anti-cytokine autoantibodies are really quite fascinating. They're a mostly adult-onset form of immunodeficiency. Very, very, very few pediatric cases so far identified. None of them, interestingly enough, none of them in infants. Unlike what you see, let's say, with um, uh, lupus, and you might have um, transient uh, heart block in infants for lupus-affected mothers, uh, we've not seen any immunodeficiency in children born to these women yet. But in Thailand, 90% of them have uh, anti-interferon neutralizing antibodies if they don't have HIV. In this country, it's very um, ethnic and gender-specific. The anti-GMCSF autoantibodies are uh, very um, organism-specific but not not uh, ethnically specific. And the treatments here are, you know, of course, antibiotics and antifungals. And then rituximab has been very effective at eliminating the B cells that are doing this, driving down the titers, and helping people to cure their disease. Now, I've told you stories that um, I think have a lot of legs because there are actually a fair number of people who have these. But I haven't told you the stories around autoantibodies to IL 12, IL 17, IL 6 erythropoietin, GCSF, and so on, all of which also exist. And I would encourage you to be thinking as you see things that don't make sense, you know, they don't not make sense. They just haven't been identified yet. And these processes are out there and they are dissectable. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna switch gears entirely and please feel free you know I'm I'm happy to stay up here as long as um, as long as the lights are on so if you want to interrupt me as I go uh, don't hesitate it would not it would not be a problem I know that may not be the norm but it'll keep me awake and keep you awake too so I want to talk to you about a different disease now that really took a long time to sort out and this is called GATA2 deficiency I know you've had at least one patient here with this who was identified by uh, Kay Hillinger and uh, has been uh, transplanted. So this disease can show up in virtually any way it wants. And it shows up typically in late childhood or adulthood. And so everybody needs to be a little bit aware of it. And it can show up as leukemia, aplastic anemia, myelodysplasia, NK deficiency, alveolar proteinosis, C. difficile, Lots of different manifestations. Let me just walk you through this for a few minutes. As you would guess from something that could be so variable, it's got to be at the junction of lots of different roads. Just like what does it take to really back up traffic? It takes one person at an intersection to knock out virtually everything that comes from north, south, east and west. Here, transcription factors do that job. And GATA2 is critically involved in the regulation of many other transcription factors, histone deacetylases, uh, uh, endothelial nitric oxide synthase, and angiopoietic factors. If you saw this week's New England Journal, you saw the um, inhibitors for the angiopoietic factors involved in um, some of the um, uh, cholesterolemia. It's really quite exciting. So GATA2 is right there at the center of many different pathways. So what's it look like? So, I first encountered this disease in 1992 when a woman from Texas was referred to me because she had disseminated M. avium. And she had hundreds of nodules like this all over her skin. You can see pus and that sort of typical purplish hue. She also complained of a headache. And on MRI scanning, you can see that she had a mass in the back of her left orbit. And that mass, uh, when we resected it, was an EBV positive. Lyomyosarcoma. Now, you know, I, I could, it took me a long time to be able to say that word. But the sarcomas that are EBV positive only occur in HIV and profound immunodeficiencies. She's 42. Her course of illness was really quite interesting. She had had severe perineal warts that were recurrent, started in um, late adolescence and early adulthood. In her 30s, she developed pneumonia for which she had a lobectomy. Not the way I typically treat pneumonias, I gotta be honest, <laughs> and not the way most Texans do, but um, she, you know, it was refractory. That's what it has to tell you. And then she developed, um, in her late 30s, a disseminated refractory M. avium. When she came to see us, the fascinating things that she had no monocytes, no B cells, and no NK cells in her peripheral blood, but despite that, had a normal number had a normal level of immunoglobulins, and her T cell number was okay. So she did not fit any traditional category. We treated her with interferon gamma, and that cleared up her mycobacterial disease, but along the way she developed chronic myelomonocytic leukemia, and following a bone marrow transplant in the 1990s, she died. I don't know what you all do here when the patients that have been most troublesome to you die, but um, we brought her back from Texas for an autopsy. And we work very hard to bring patients back. So even though autopsies are not as popular as they once were, man, are they important. And if you don't study your failures, how are you gonna know how to make the next successes? And the fascinating thing at autopsy was that despite the fact that she had no monocytes in the peripheral blood, she had plenty of macrophages in her tissue. And despite the fact that she had no B cells in her peripheral blood, she did have normal immunoglobulins And she had plenty of plasma cells in the tissue. So those things must have existed once upon a time and trafficked out there to the tissue. And then we even took a family history. I know, I know. Who would expect it? And what we found out was that not only had this patient had all these problems, warts, MAC, CMML, her mother had died of chronic myelomonocytic leukemia and mycobacterial disease in her 50s. And as we were screening to find a bone marrow transplant donor for her, we found out that her 30 something year old sister had no monocytes, no B cells, and had bad perineal warts. Well, long story short, that was 1992. It took me until 2010 to put together 18 patients that had the same syndrome. And, um, I, you know, I don't even know where we came up with this title, I, I think it must have been during an election year, but autosomal dominance, sporadic, I, I don't know what it was. But the point was that these patients had a lot of different features. Because I was interested in mycobacterial disease, almost everybody that I saw had a mycobacterial disease. But despite the fact that this was how we collected them, almost everyone had HPV disease, and then many of them had mild dysplasia and other problems. What does that look like? So this is a 26-year-old woman who has really bad warts on her hands and feet. They've been relatively stable, but nothing makes them go away. (laughs) I don't mean to be offensive in any way, but it is absolutely tragic. I cannot tell you the number of young women I have who in their 20s come to me after their second vulvectomy when the gynecologist says, uh, this is abnormal. And then people say, wow, if you've got young women who have bad perineal warts, you've got to think about why they have them. That's not normal. And so these are severe and refractory. They get bad viral infections. This young man had a lesion in his liver. It was also chock full of EBV, just like the retro orbital mass in that first woman. A 32-year-old man, all adults we're talking about, who shows up with disseminated histoplasmosis and actually had disseminated MAC at the same time. When we identified him, we started looking in his family and his mother, who was in her 60s, had unilateral lymphedema and warts on her leg. Otherwise, was perfectly healthy. So what does this look like when you start to dissect down a little bit? These patients have bone marrow failure, late onset bone marrow failure. This is what it looks like. You know, Normally your bone marrow should be very cellular. You can see these are all areas of fat replacement, very hypocellular. They develop a hypocellular MDS. Most adults develop hypercellular MDS. These are different. And if you see a hypocellular MDS, um, you need to think about this and aplastic anemia. And then they have characteristic anomalies of their um, of the myeloid series that are really for your hematopathologist to recognize. But they get funny, me- funny-looking megakaryocytes and funny-looking other myeloid things. And you can see here is a flow cytometric study of the marrow, but... The key point here is that it mirrors what we saw in the peripheral blood. That is, these patients, this is what a normal cell, normal marrow looks like. This is B cell maturation. It goes from immature to mature. In our patients and the bone marrow, you can see that they've lost all of the B cell precursors. They just have a very, very small number of these mature cells left hiding out in the bone marrow. They also have plasma cells that are making antibodies, but all of the precursors die and then the marrow begins to decay. So as you'd guess, GATA2 has to be one of those genes that's so far up in the the control structure that taking it out influences everything from the erythroid series to the monocyte and uh, lymphoid series. And that's where GATA2 is. GATA2 is right up here at the level of control of T cell and B cell and myeloid development. Well, once we realized all that, we went back and started screening our patients, looking for genes in the early uh, pathway. And um, it was um, on uh, the morning of May 3rd of 2011 that my technician called me up at about seven o'clock in the morning and started screaming into the phone, you know, eight out of eight, eight out of eight. And I thought she had hit the lottery or something. I really didn't know what it was. And it meant that out of the eight patients she'd screened for Geta2, all of them were positive for mutations in that gene and um, we then rapidly so that was May 3rd and we were able to get the paper out by June 13th which was really quite extraordinary and it was fun because the journal was trying to help us but despite the fact how fast it it was it happened at the end it took 19 years from the time I saw the first patient to the time we identified what it was which reminds you that NIH can also stand for not in a hurry (laughs) well of course, at about the same time that we identified this, you know it's, you, there are no unique ideas in general, and ours certainly wasn 't and At the same time that we were identifying this as what we called the monomax syndrome, several other groups identified the same gene causing different features, so focusing on the fact that they have no dendritic cells, the fact that they 've got lymphedema, the fact they 've got MDS, or that NK cells are, are missing so five genes one five diseases. All one gene, all one syndrome. I won't bore you with um, some of the biochemistry here, except to say that this is a zinc finger transcription factor. So it's down onto the DNA. It straddles the DNA. And, of course, that means that the parts that are straddling have to be pretty common because DNA has a basic structure. And it's called GATA2 because it binds to G-A-T-A. That's the origin of the name. And there are six GATA factors. And, um, you know, there's one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, and three are mostly hematopoietic. Four, five, and six are mostly somatic. But because they all bind to the same sequence, they all have pretty much the same structure here at the two zinc fingers. And their variation is all in the C and the N termini so they can recruit in different transcription factors and then do things like cardiac development, um, pancreatic, pancreatic development, and so on. Now, the, I'm not going to uh, uh, trouble you with the mutational analysis, except to say that you know it's a gene that's got several exons here in black. And if you've got a mutation in the exon, that um, leads to loss of protein, well, that's easy. Then you've lost the gene. If you've got a mutation that replaces one amino acid with another amino acid, that's a missense change. And those behave pretty much the same as those nonsense changes. What makes this gene a little bit complicated is that about 25 percent of the mutations occur inside the intron, which is exactly where whole exome sequencing doesn't look. And part of the reason it took me so long to find this gene was that I did whole exome sequencing and I happened to have chosen two patients who had intronic mutations and I missed it and I got led away from it for several years. So you gotta be very careful when you know nowadays as we're gonna get more and more genomic studies back you're gonna get whole exomes and you'll say well I didn't show up this gene in my exome study. But that may not mean that that's not the target gene it just means that it wasn't exonic. Now just to sort of um, wrap up on this disease you know they get a variety of problems. The viral infections typically start late in childhood and are typically HPV. And they get worse, but most people don't pay much attention to HPV. They say, that's annoying. They go back to the dermatologist again and again and again, unless they're genital, in which case they get seen by typically a gynecologist. And then they get worse over time. That's in part because their NK cells both don't function and then disappear. And uh, those NK cells, which are involved in viral protection, are really very dysfunctional. They don't develop the mature, fully active form. They begin to get mycobacterial and fungal infections in their late teens and 20s and 30s. Mycobacterium cansassiae should be a major, major, major tip-off that that's what you're dealing with. Very few people get disseminated mycobacterial disease. Disseminated M. mcansassiae is very common in this disease. And then, a little bit after that, people begin to notice the myelodysplasia. And the myelodysplasia typically shows up as leukopenia, but can show up as other features as well. One of the things to make sure that I mention here is that there's a characteristic kind of lung disease in this disease. And you can see these paraceptal changes here along the septa and the subpleural emphysematous changes. Very typical for this. Whether that's because their alveolar macrophages don't function properly and therefore they don't remodel the lung correctly, I can't tell you. But it's a very common finding. You can see this beginning in childhood and certainly gets worse as they get into adulthood. And then as the dysplasia progresses, the, the pulmonary alveolar proteinosis gets worse. And um, that presumably is because the alveolar macrophages don't work. They're there, but they're not effective. And being ineffective, surfactant builds up just like it does in those who have autoantibodies against GMCSF. Unfortunately, GMCSF therapy doesn't make this any better. So, uh, if you're talking about pediatric patients, they have a lot of mutations as well. Um, again, many of them are intronic, and in children, this typically shows up as um, mild dysplasia, and there's a very high rate of Monosomy 7 and trisomy 8. This is not something that typically falls to us as internists, but if you encounter anybody who's got cytogenetic abnormalities on a bone marrow, stop and think, "Why do they have that? Could it be related to this? So in pediatric mild dysplasia, it's the most likely genetic diagnosis. And, again, it's, it's painful when after years of children being followed with low-level myelodysplasia, suddenly somebody figures it out. It's even more painful when they figure it out after they've done a bone marrow transplant from a sibling who's affected. Very painful. So, lastly, this is a disease you want to diagnose because you can fix it. You can fix the autoantibodies by obliterating um, offending B cells. You can fix this by obliterating the offending bone marrow. I'm not going to go into the dynamics of bone marrow transplantation, but there are a lot of really cool things happening here. And one of them that um, we've been working on is giving Cytoxan after the transplant. This is a regimen developed at Johns Hopkins by Ephraim Fuchs and others. And you can give the Cytoxan, that's what you use to wipe out the marrow in the first place, And then you use it after transplant because it wipes out those allo-reactive cells that cause graft-versus-host disease. Seems counterintuitive to give chemotherapy after you just gave somebody else's bone marrow, but in fact, you do the right dose for the right duration, and it works out beautifully. And so this is our uh, survival rates. We've had terrific success with our uh, haplo-related donors and our matched-related donors. We've had less good but still significant success in unrelated donors. And um, once we've added in the new um, cytoxin approach, we think that it's been much better. So how does Gata2 do all these things? Well, it's got complex regulatory effects, as I've shown you. They have abnormal vessels and lymphatics. They're overlapped because the Gata factors bind to the same targets. I think this is why they're so complex. And the reason that they lose their population of monocytes and B cells is because they die uh, they don't develop anymore, but they have still antibody production and so on because all of those things populated the uh, tissues early in life, and so the um, the survivors, the the uh, macrophages and the uh, plasma cells are still there. So I've tried to give you a brief sense of a couple of diseases that are unusual that present typically in adulthood. And that can be very protean in their manifestations. I show them to you because they're diseases I missed for a long time. And I've tried to be honest with you about how long I missed them, although I haven't really told you exactly how long. But it was a long time. And I know that people see these cases um, everywhere because once they get recognized, um, we hear about them. And I want to make sure that you have a chance to identify them and to um, help get them fixed. If you have a case that you think might be one of these diseases and you're not sure, just send me an email. And I'd be happy to uh, try and help you sort through it. And we do plenty of diagnostics. We'd be happy to try and be as helpful as we can. So pretty much, if they're sick, there's a reason. And if there's a reason, you can find it. And that's really a blast. So I just remind you that, you know, (laughs) genotype persists, phenotype changes, and phenotype, which is what all of us deal with as physicians, is affected by time, exposure, environment, and even satisfaction. Thank you very much. These are the people that have done the work here, uh, Amy Sue and Elizabeth Sampaio and many collaborators.
0: some Time
1: for questions. Anybody before we get started? You mentioned a a number of these illnesses show up in adulthood. I was just curious whether sex steroids play any role in in, in these diseases, or do you think they're just accumulation of disease over time? Yeah, I'm not sure about it. So the question is do these things are these affected by sex steroids? And you know, that's, that's a very it's a very complicated question. And um, for the um, for the autoantibody disease, um, we think that there is a major gender split only once they come here. Now, you know, not everything about gender is about estrogen and or testosterone. I mean there's a whole separate chromosome that, that girls get and, and all of us are are born without. So I can't tell you what's the aspect there that's important. In the form of mycobacterial disease I didn't talk about, lung disease, you know, non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease in this country is overwhelmingly a female disorder, overwhelmingly postmenopausal Caucasian women. And so, you know, we, we all say, well, there must be some role for estrogen there. And I don't doubt for a minute that there is, but I can't tell you what it is. And these sex steroids, whether they're androgens or, or estrogens, are involved in so many metabolic processes. I think where we really need to go is to the, to the next level of metabolomics to try and figure out exactly what are they doing. You know, we, we can see the, the external phenotype, but at the cellular level, it's extremely confusing to me still. So I simply don't know.
0: Um, Leaving <clears throat> the realm
1: of infectious disease, what do you think the potential is for uh, acquired antibodies to intracellular
0: messengers and cytokines to explain right. illness in psychiatric health, neuro- neurologic disease, cardiac,
1: no. So, So the question is leaving infectious disease, which I will not do, um, what is the role of autoantibodies in other illnesses? Well, this is huge. And, and I, I mean, I completely agree. So in psychiatry, um, there are there is an absolutely spectacular um, syndrome of um, autoantibodies to the NMDA receptor uh, that co- that present as sometimes coma, sometimes uh, neuropsychiatric stuff. There are some um, influenza-induced autoantibodies to I don't remember what that present as narcolepsy. Again, all of these can be treated with B cell depletion. Um, and then in uh, thymoma, uh, you know, a typical adult onset. Uh, uh, malignant disease, autoantibodies to a variety of cytokines um, make them present with the immunodeficiencies and so on. So absolutely, the significance of acquired autoantibodies to a variety of mediators is huge. Now, this, I mean, I think the, the, the blocks to detection are falling because these techniques are simple. That lips technique, I mean, it's complicated for Peter to do, but But, you know, he can whip out something in a day because it's just a simple DNA manipulation. I think intracellular targets are going to be somewhat less critical than extracellular targets. And so surface receptors and um, secreted molecules are likely to be bigger targets than our intracellular things. But, But this is not universal. And I think we are... You know, uh, my own sense is that we spend a lot of time uh, being educated uh, in medical school about the scientific basis of medicine. And then, um, frankly, the cards are stacked pretty heavily against us when we get out into the practice of medicine about how we can go back and keep on trying to explore that. And it's going to take real concerted effort by clinicians who are willing to say, "Mm, there's something funny here. Let's look into it and others. Just one last example and then I'll, I'll stop. Um, when, when we went to look in connective tissue disease so in lupus RA and Sjogren syndrome for autoantibodies, um, what we found was that autoantibodies against interferon gamma actually made lupus worse. They have autoantibodies against interferon They don't cause infections, they're not that high blocking but they do make for worse disease in contrast autoantibodies against interferon alpha ameliorate disease in lupus in a disease that we all think we know about or at least we know what we don't know but here we've got the same sort of problem occurring in diseases that we've been treating for years so that means if you've been doing studies for instance in which you categorize patients into X, Y, and Z, but haven't taken to, into account the fact that they've got endogenous manipulation of their own immune responses—not infection-related. I mean, I'm talking severity-related. Uh, uh, that's going to be something that will have to be refigured as you go forward. So these are pervasive, and and they're not well accounted for. Thank you.
0: Is there any um, work going towards capturing this population preventively? I mean, you talked about the progression. Right.
1: So capture is a complicated word in Washington right now, and I'm going to be I'm going to be a little careful about that. Um, but um, so I think the question that you raise is once you. So this is really a big a big deal. And I must say it's it's where I think all of us are going to be headed. Um, so when we identify an individual with, say, get a two uh, deficiency, because that really runs in families, when we find that. Then the first thing we do is we go back and say, okay, you know, we really better talk to the rest of your family. A, we need donors if you're going to have a transplant. But B, we know that somebody's at risk. So just the guy I admitted Monday night, um, 38-year-old man who had been found to be a little bit leukopenic five years ago when he had um, a hydrocele. And the doctor said, yeah, you know, your your white count's a little low, but you feel fine. Don't worry about it. And then five years later, he's like pancytopenic and has got a lot of problems. White count is 1,000, his hematocrit's 20. And then you sit and talk with him and, oh, yeah, well, my nephew died at 15 of AML and my sister has aplastic anemia, um, but, you know, I'm okay. And so, well, you know, so, so if five years ago somebody had preemptively said, why are you leukopenic? even though it's modest and it's not bothering you, but there's probably a reason. We might have been able to help his nephew and so on. The problem comes, what do you do when, so he's got a four year old and an 11 month old. Should we test them? Yeah, we should. What do we do about it? Ooh, that's more complicated. So I'll tell you what we do. We identify now children because of their parents and we say to them, you know, your child has a risk factor for something a risk factor for developing leukemia or infections or something down the road. Let's follow them. And at the first sign that somebody's moving in the wrong direction, we say now we think it's time to consider bone marrow transplantation. We don't do it preemptively, though. We're not good enough yet. I don't think transplant is safe enough. And transplant has other consequences, fertility and so on. Well, so the implications for insurance, we are hoping that the real world stays the way it is now and that the insurance implications are uh, obviated. However, there is a risk that uh, this is being done. But as, as many of you know, is New Hampshire a state that does newborn screening? So, you know, these issues around pre-existing conditions, since the majority of children who get screened positive for low uh, lymphocyte numbers don't have genetic disorders. I don't know how those are going to be factored into long-term insurability. I, I, my own guess is that that boat has sailed and that that pre-existing conditions and insurability will continue to be available despite all the rhetoric, but you know, I, I certainly was, was wrong a few months ago. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but I think that uh, we're likely to stay um, with that. So, yeah, there are insurance questions, but you're going to need insurance if you need a transplant. Uh, so I, I think we can't get around it.
0: Given the power, um, yes, uh, thank you well, very I'll much. Thank you for making it so um, accessible and making it really a great time.